All right, well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy in bringing us together again this week. Thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, understand it, but not just as a cold, dead thing, but as what it really is, the word of the Lord, and help us to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so we are in our fourth week of studying God's covenants, and we've seen so far that um, God relates to his creatures by covenant. And this theme runs through the whole Bible and actually is the thing that ties the whole Bible together. It is over and over and over and over. It is the thing, the theme, the reality, the truth that, buys, that ties the whole Bible together. And so we've looked at what I'm calling the universal covenant a few weeks ago. God is the creator of the whole world and simply by existing, everything is in a, in a covenant relationship with God. There are certain duties that all of creation is bound by, including men and angels. And then last week, we began to look at God's covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but last week, we didn't really get into God's covenant with Adam per se. Instead, I gave you some realities that lie beneath the surface of this account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that I think will help us understand more clearly what's actually going on. And here are the background realities that I gave you last week. Number one, before the Lord God made man, he made an innumerable multitude of beings that go by various names, sons of God, morning stars, gods, angels, principalities, powers, so on and so forth. Real beings with real will and mind and action in the world. Some of them are bad and some of them are good, as we've seen, as we saw last week. Some, some rebelled against God. Number two, God gathers these beings around himself in a divine assembly or divine council. And you see this all through scripture. And this will come back next week, all right? And then third, this divine assembly meets in special places like heavenly temples, mountains, the heads of rivers, and gardens. Now, Actually, so last week I told you, we're, I'm gonna show you how all that is important. Today, I lied, it'll be next week. Because this, this, this lesson broke into two. It just keeps on, it's like multi be fruitful and multiply. Oh, not next week, the week after, you know what I mean. <laughs> These lessons are fruitful and multiplying, so. Now, today we're going to start, we are going to start by, and, and look at the covenant, God's covenant with Adam, by reading a large chunk of scripture from Genesis 1 and 2, and um, I'll bring those background issues into the foreground next week, or you know what I'm saying, next time we meet. We'll see a couple of them here, actually. So let's start reading, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now stop right there for a second. We usually think of the us here. See that? Let us make man in our image as a kind of a shadow of the Trinity. I mean, who's he talking to? Well, he must be talking to himself. Not in a schizophrenic way, right? But because there's 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing together. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it, and it could very well be uh, an indication that the Lord is speaking to the divine council. We saw last week there is such a thing, and he deliberates with them, and he says, here's what we're going to do. And then, of course, he does it. He does it. I mean, he says, here's what we're going to do. He does it. You know, if I say to you, hey, everybody, let's, uh, let's go get pizza. I'm buying. <laughs> right? <laughs> let's, but, I, but I'm doing it. All right. Maybe. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to every living thing that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now let's skip ahead to Genesis chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed on all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. Remember, last week, Gardens are places all through scripture and all this whole ancient world. Everyone knew this is not the park bench and the, and the lamppost and the, and the tomato plant. This is the place where the gods met, okay? This is where the divine council gathered. That's what we should think. So the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Remember, gathering place of the gods, one of them was the place where the rivers started. So here's what it says. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and from there it divided and became four rivers, the name of the first is Pishon, it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, it flows around the whole land of Cush, 
The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken out from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, that's the account. Now, what's the first thing to notice about this, this account? Genesis 1 to 3, well, the word covenant is not used anywhere, right? But that doesn't mean that God doesn't make a covenant with Adam. Here's why. The word covenant is not used in Genesis 1 to 3, but the word covenant also doesn't appear in 2 Samuel 7, where God is clearly making a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. Guess what? The word covenant isn't used. Okay. Number two, Moses wrote the book of Genesis after God delivered his people Israel from bondage in Egypt and made a covenant with them. I mean, who's reading this for the first time? The children of Israel in the wilderness, on the plains of Moab probably, getting ready to enter the promised land, and they've got covenant ringing in their ears. They know a covenant when they see it. All right? Number three, in Genesis two and three, Moses uses the covenant name for God 20 times. The covenant name for God is Yahweh. When you see it in in our English translation, Lord, all capital letters, that's Yahweh. Yahweh is the name by which he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am who I am. I am, that's the name, that's Yahweh. All right, and so Je- Moses, as he's writing this story of the, of the creation, uses that name. Everyone would have thought, oh yeah, Yahweh, covenant, all right? Hosea 6, 7 does mention God's covenant with Adam, as a matter of fact. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. This is speaking of the people of Israel. But Hosea says, well, God says in Hosea, they transgressed the covenant just like Adam did. What covenant did Adam transgress? Well, the covenant that God made with him. All right? And then lastly, when the Bible explains the work of Jesus Christ, so in places like Romans 5 and the New Testament, it describes his work of salvation in parallel with Adam's work of rebellion. And we'll look at that passage more. 
but they are set up in parallel to one another as heads of covenants. The people of Adam, the people of Jesus, the people of Christ. Adam brings death to his people, Christ brings life to his people. One act of disobedience brings death, one act of obedience brings life. That's, that's the logic. So clearly, Adam was in covenant. He was a covenant head. All right? So those are the reasons why we don't need to be worried about that. Uh, the fact that there is no word covenant here. Okay, are you all with me? So what is a covenant? Remember, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And we do, in fact, see the marks of a covenant here in Genesis. We see a covenant Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. That's his name. It's what he's called in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We see commandments and stipulations. We see the life and death consequences for disobedience. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Right? And implied in all of that is the promise of life and blessing if Adam fulfills the covenant stipulations. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But there's not just threats, but there are promises. And we'll talk about that next week. Theologians through the ages have called God's covenant with Adam by several different names. The covenant of creation is one. It's the covenant that comes right from the beginning. The covenant of works, because there are things that Adam must do and must not do, with the threat of death and the promise of life. Or the covenant of life, this is what uh, I think the Westminster Catechism calls it the covenant of life, right? Or the Adamic covenant. So you pick up any book and you might find a different term and it's confusing. So these terms are all talking about the same thing, all right? God's covenant with Adam. Whatever we call it, we can think about God's covenant with Adam according to two aspects, okay? God's covenant with Adam has two aspects, general aspects and, its, and focal, the focal aspect. The general aspects are the broad, broader duties of man to his creator that come by command to Adam in the garden, but they're not unique to Adam. They're general. And then the focal aspect is the specific duty of Adam himself in his role as the representative or head of his covenant, of this covenant. And there's a difference. There are general aspects that are broader duties of man to his creator, and then it focuses on Adam in particular as the head of the covenant, and that's the command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And we're gonna look at that next week. So this week, we're gonna look at these general aspects of the covenant. And this is, this is important because these, you know, Genesis one to three, um, aren't, this is not like icing on the cake, right? This is the cake. I mean, the whole Bible comes out of this. Everything we, we think about, the world and us and God and our duties to God, and what it means to be a man or a woman. All of this comes from Genesis, so it's kind of weird to just brush by these things. That's why I'm gonna have, I will have, next week I will have spent three weeks on Genesis. 
but all the rest will go quite quicker, trust me. I promise. So today we're gonna talk just about the general aspects. So what are they? Well, three, fruitful marriage, faithful labor, and restful Sabbath. These are the duties of God's covenant with Adam, but they're not unique to Adam, all right? They are general, they actually very much apply to us. So let's look at each one of these. So first of all, fruitful marriage. So when we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, it's weird, and people make a lot of this, but they shouldn't. Um, You have the whole six days of creation in Genesis 1, right? Culminating in Genesis 2 with the seventh day, the Sabbath. And then you kind of start over again, but you're not really starting over again. It's not a different story. It's not two different people. It's zeroing in on Adam, okay? So Genesis 1, kind of the broad scope, and then zoom. Let's, let's, let's look at this again. And when we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we zoom in from the general account of God creating the whole world to these specifics. And when we get to chapter 2, we see that all of the aspects of God's crea- of all the aspects of God's creation, only one of them is what? Not good. Not good. So everything in Genesis 1, you know this, right? And God saw what he had made and it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then on day six, he said, it is very good. This is very good. And then you get to Genesis 2.18 that zeroes in on Adam and Eve and it says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. And then what does God do next? We just read it. What does he do next? Brings all the animals to Adam. So God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. But he doesn't just make a helper suitable for him. He says, hey, Adam, come here. I'm going to bring all these animals to you, and I want you to name them. So this happens between when God says, it's not good for man to be alone, I'm going to make a woman, and when he actually makes the woman. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? Man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Right? So he's bringing the animals two by two, two by two, male, female, male, female, male, female. Huh. Hmm. Wait a minute. Where's mine? This, this act of naming, by the way, is an act of dominion. This is, one of, this is Adam's first work of exercising dominion over these animals, is naming them. But there is no one for me, he says. He finds, okay, there is no suitable helper for me. 
So I believe that the Lord created in Adam a sense of his aloneness. He created in him an obvious sense of aloneness, right? Which helps you understand his reaction in the next passage. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh. At that place, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, ah, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Again, naming, by the way. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, he primed Adam for the blessing of the woman by showing him that you don't have one. Just like all the animals do. You don't have a helper. And so he feels his need and then when he gets it, he is full of, of gladness, isn't he? He's rejoicing. Now marriage is entirely God's idea. Right? Sexual intimacy is entirely God's idea. If you believe the world, you'd think, oh no, the devil made it up. You know? It's something that you don't do or think about or talk about if you're a Christian. No, actually it was God's idea. And God designed sexual intimacy not just to be a physical reality but also a deeply spiritual reality. The problem was Adam's solitude, his aloneness. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And that's more than just a physical reality. And so God took the one he took the one, Adam, and made him into the two. Right? Adam and Eve. And then God causes the two to become one again. By a spiritual and sexual union. And this is why God's ordinance for marriage is inviolable. It's unchangeable. We can't redefine it. We didn't make it up. It's not ours, it's God's. God made it. And this is why also, of course, by definition, from creation, the physical and the spiritual union, marriage is the physical and spiritual union of one man and one woman. I know this is all very basic, but does, doesn't go without saying. I'll probably get reported for hate speech today. No polygamy, no divorce, no homosexuality. By definition, right? This is where it comes from. This isn't just a cultural, you know, some people do it that way, and some people do it that way, and some people don't do it at all, but that's okay, whatever. No, this is, this is God's creation. And so when Jesus is asked about divorce, Matthew 19, 
He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Haven't, wait, you haven't read that? Right, haven't you read this? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is the ordinance of God from the beginning, right? And so from the beginning, God made for Adam a helper suitable for him. And God took Eve out of Adam's side and made her to be exactly what he needed to help him fulfill his role as God's earthly king. You need a helper and I'm gonna make you exactly the helper you need. And so one of the purposes of marriage, one of the purposes of marriage built into creation by God himself is companionship. It is not good for man to be alone. You could say it's the first purpose of marriage. But there's another purpose of marriage built into creation itself. In fact, what is the first command that God actually gives to Adam? What's the first command he actually gives to him? It is. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This is Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's creation ordinance is not just marriage, but what? Fruitful marriage. That is God's ordinance. That is his command. And contrary to many evangelical Christians today, this command has in no way been canceled or done away with. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So the first ordinance of God in creation is fruitful marriage. Here's the second, faithful labor. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. This is work. And so the Lord did not make Adam to lounge about munching on exotic fruit. You know, that's not the idea you should have. Oh, it's paradise. Paradise means pina colada and lounge chair, you know. I'm just gonna lay around. And, oh, I'm hungry. Oh, oh, a fruit. You know, just, oh, there it is. Just fell off a tree right into my hand. Hardly have to even chew it. It's so soft. You know, 
This is, would that be paradise? It would be hell. Yeah, after a day. (laughs) So he didn't make Adam to lounge about. He made him to work. And again, just like fruitful marriage, God built work into the fabric of creation. He made this creation to need to be worked. And he made man to be able to do it. That's why you have thumbs. Seriously. (laughs) Just think about that. And so Adam must fulfill God's purpose by actually doing things on the earth. He must rule over the lower creation, he must subdue it, he must cultivate and keep the Garden of Eden. Why? Well, God is a worker. Part of what it means for man to be in the image of God is for us to work. You are being subhuman if you don't work. This is why in the New Testament, um, a man who doesn't work is what? Worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. Right? This is what we're made for. All right, so you've got fruitful marriage, faithful labor, and then restful Sabbath. Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And so this pattern, I mean the Sabbath doesn't make sense apart from what? Work. Work is just as much a command as Sabbath is, but Sabbath is just as much a command as work is. They go hand in hand. You can't separate them. And so this pattern of working for six days and resting on the seventh is rooted in God's own activity. He worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. Now obviously, God didn't have to do it that way. Right? I mean, it's not as if he was... He can only do so much. I mean, come on. Okay, this is going to take another day. Uh, Didn't get it all done. I guess it'll take another day. I mean, that's not how it is with God. He could have created everything all at once with a single word. He's not limited by the amount of work he could do in a single day or even in a single moment. And of course, doing his work didn't make him tired. (laughs) Right? He didn't exert himself to the point of exhaustion, and yet it says he rested. But it's not the rest of exhaustion. It's the rest of being done. And so God's pattern of of six days of labor and one day of rest is a pattern that he intentionally built in to the fabric of creation. That's my point. It didn't have to be that way. He did it that way. Why? Why? He did it for us. The Sabbath is made for man. 
So the way that God made the earth, the way that he made the air, the way that he made the dirt, the way that he made the plants, the way that he made the Sabbath, the way that he made your thumbs, right? He does the way that he made your taste buds. He made all of these things just exactly perfect, just right. It's good. He made it the Sabbath for us. Even the way that he made everything, he did that for us so that there would be a Sabbath. And he's the pattern. It's our pattern too. In fact, later in his covenant with Israel through Moses, which we'll look at later, right? God writes this pattern into his holy law. It's a pre-existing pattern. It's a pre-existing ordinance. He doesn't make it up when he gives it to Adam and or gives it to Moses and the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. This is a pre-existing pattern. What you find in the law of Moses is certain rules get attached to it. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. But this is a pre-existing pattern. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is the Ten Commandments, right? A reflection of the character of God himself in the moral law. And I think we, always, we often forget this. We remember this part, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but then what do they say about Sabbath and work? They always go hand in hand. You can't separate them. There is the command of the, Sab- of the Sabbath is there, but there is also a command to work for six days. Six days you shall labor, that's, right? And do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. Why? For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All right? So, fruitful marriage, faithful labor, restful Sabbath. These are things that God built into creation. These are the general aspects of God's covenant with Adam. These are what we call creation ordinances. Creation ordinances. When did these come? After the fall? No, before the fall, right? These are, these are things that God built into the nature of reality. These are duties. He built these duties into creation from the time of creation and they are embedded in the structure of creation itself. So here's the question. Have any of these been removed or made obsolete? Well, have they? I mean, listen everybody, 
there's all kinds of people who say absolutely yes to at least two of these. Which two? Fruitful marriage and Sabbath. A friend of mine in another church here in town, that's gonna leave it really ambiguous, isn't it? Not really. Um, this young man was teaching uh, in the youth group and mentioned the fact that, hey, you know, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is, a, this is he just took it for granted that this is still in force. And another man came up to him afterwards, another leader, and said, you can't say that, that's not true. In the gospel, you know, the New Testament does away with that because the New Testament is about spiritual things and the Old Testament is about physical things. So that must be a physical thing, you know, like children. So you, we are to have spiritual children. Right? Now, you, you've all heard this, right? Some, maybe some of you still believe it. But it doesn't make any sense. Why not? <laughs> well, that's one reason. That whole paradigm is completely wrong. The New Testament is just as physical as the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is just as spiritual as the New Testament. There is a massive continuity, right? These are things that God built into creation from the beginning. These things don't go away. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't undo creation. He fixes it. He fixes it. He doesn't fix it by swapping it out for something else entirely. He fixes it that God made that is very good. These are creation ordinances. And the work of redemption, the work of Christ in redemption doesn't undo these things or make them irrelevant. It actually makes it possible again. This is why, well, yeah, more to say. As long as this world exists in its current form, these duties and ordinances are binding on all men and women everywhere. They are not removed in the new covenant. Now that doesn't mean that every man or woman has to get married and blah, 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 blah. Right? But there it is. These are duties. The providence of God comes into play, of course with marriage and with children, and in a sense with labor. If you're not physically able, able to labor, God's not unaware of that, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the general. This, these are the duties that God has laid on man, and on Adam, but also on us. Same is true, by the way, of the Sabbath, and we'll get to that when we get to Moses. But this, the, the Sabbath is on par with things like marriage and labor, right? 
It's not just randomly thrown out. But we'll talk about that. Okay, any questions real quick? We gotta be done. Next time, we'll talk about that specific thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the fall. Any questions or thoughts? Yes? When contemporary Christians talk about the nature of marriage, they never mention anything about Genesis. All yeah. They talk about what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. He, he said when, when, when Christians today talk about marriage, they never go back to Genesis, they only go to Jesus. That's because we don't think of the Old Testament as authority or as, as uh, you know, binding on us. That's awful. Jesus went back to the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a point. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would strengthen us for our duties that you have given to us and make us strong in this world, in the world of the church and in the unbelieving world as we take our stand on a very, very solid place, the nature of reality, what you have done, what you have built into this world We're not the crazy ones. Please help us to believe that and to stand firm. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.